Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. The show today we have what I believe is an outstanding podcast with Derwin Gray, a pastor from the greater Charlotte area. I'm going to be real honest, didn't uh, really know a ton of his work up until this podcast and uh, this book, and I, I'm a big fan. I think y'all are too. If you don't know his work already, uh, you are in for a treat. Uh, you know, one of the things that you need to know about him, he is from Texas, which is part of the reason why he's so amazing. But um, we'll get to that uh, podcast with Durbin Gray in just a second. But first, I want to tell you a story. A few weeks back, I uh, was getting a haircut. It was a Saturday evening. One of the uh, last people in, I typically get a haircut Saturday evening in case you were wondering, hey, what day does Luke get a haircut? Now you know, Saturday evening. I'm in there getting a haircut with the same person who has cut my hair for the last almost six years. Since I moved to Austin, I think the first or second person who cut my hair was a friend of mine now known as Morgan. Uh, she was known as that then, but it's her name still. Um, and Morgan was cutting my hair. This gentleman walks in. Uh, everyone is wearing masks at the time, as that is the uh, requirement of the uh, the place, and uh, you know that's what everyone was doing a couple months ago. And so he walks in, and walks in, and there's light that kind of comes in behind him because it's like a glass front, and so windows are kind of coming in, uh, lights coming in over his shoulders, kind of silhouetted, and uh, he comes in, and then he just sits down. Sits down for a couple minutes as uh, you know everyone's working, finishing the day, last haircuts of the day, and after about three minutes, he just freaks out. He stands up and says, "This is the rudest place ever. I have never been this mistreated in business ever." And he looks at Morgan and goes, "Like, and, and you, you, uh, you didn't even say hi to me when I walked in, and you are so rude for doing that." And he just is freaking out now. At this moment, I like have that sort of like fight or flight response where I'm thinking literally this is how things escalate and things go bad. And let's be honest, we're in Texas. You never know who's got what. And uh, like I, I was starting to be like, okay, what are we going to do if this guy takes it up a notch? Literally scared. I haven't seen someone act like this in a store um, and I, I, like I, I don't have a comparison to it. But he goes off, you know, Morgan, who is extremely friendly. I've known her for years. She's always friendly to people when they walk in. Uh, people, uh, there's a, like a dozen people from Westover who get their hair cut by her now. And they all know her to be a friendly person. And so he says, she's so rude. I'm like, well, I, I've known her for like over half a decade. She's not a rude person. And, you know, everyone's wearing masks. So maybe she says hi and he doesn't see it uh, because he's walking in. The light's kind of weird, all that. But whatever happened... He's freaking out at a level that is inconsistent with the mistreatment he's received. But in that moment, I have this like insight of this is what's happening for so many of us. Because clearly this guy is not upset because someone didn't say hi to him and he had to wait three minutes. There's no reason for you to yell and to get irate over something like that. He eventually leaves for the rest of the story and uh, I would be surprised if he ever came back. But there's no reason for him to act like that other than he's dealing with something in that room that had nothing to do with that room. He's do- dealing with something that had nothing to do with this place where he's wanting to get a haircut, had nothing to do with the haircut, had nothing to do with Morgan, had nothing to do with anyone there. It had something to do with what was underneath the surface. Now, there's an old line by James Baldwin who says, um, you know, the, uh, the reason we cling to our anger so much is if we had to let go of it, then we'd ha- finally have to deal with our hurt. And I think what we find right now is there are a lot of people that have a lot of hurt and the way it's being poured out and expressed is in, in anything other than a healthy way. And so uh, we need to take some time like to assess what's going on underneath the surface. As we're coming out of this uh, you know, COVID pandemic, as we're almost to the other side of it, uh, obviously there's varying degrees of like where we are and everyone's opinion on it. I'm not trying to make a statement about that, but... One of the things that many of us are bringing with us are resentments and angers and hurts and frustrations that have come from being isolated from how people are handling it in ways that we don't think are right or don't think are the best way. And if we're not careful, if we don't like make peace with those things that are underneath the surface, they're going to present in other ways. As old Richard Rohr says to us, if you don't transform your pain, you will transmit it. So I encourage you, to take an assessment of what's going on underneath the surface 
Uh, honestly, I wrote a book a year ago entitled Befriending Your Monsters, which is completely talking about this. I wish I would have had the foresight to be like, hey, let's hold off on this book for like a year because then it'd be really timely. But nevertheless, if you don't have a copy of it, like I think it would be really timely right now. So get it now. It still would work if you've never read it yet uh, or if you have, still get another copy. But um, the point of what I'm trying to say is there is stuff that is underneath the surface. But the thing that we know about monsters is that they don't stay hidden forever. But the problem is they don't come out always at the opportune time. So befriend your monsters, take care of what's underneath the surface so that you don't end up like that guy who's yelling at my good friend Morgan for no good reason. Now, speaking of good reasons, you have a good reason to continue listening because we've got a great podcast with Derwin Gray. So here we go. Check it out. All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. We have joining us from the greater Charlotte area, Dr. Derwin Gray. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, man. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, sir. I'm looking. Uh, I'm looking forward to it as well. Now, I see over your shoulder a lot of love for the Indianapolis Colts and mm-hmm. uh, and BYU. Now, mm-hmm. um, when I was, I went to school in Abilene, Texas, and okay. we had a couple guys who were playing for the Colts at the same time from the Abilene area. And okay. I don't know what it is about Abilene that had love for the Colts, but I want you to know there's, there's positivity towards that helmet since it's in the background. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, the great state of Texas uh, funnels lots of talent throughout the uh, National Football League. So. For sure. For sure. And obviously, you're from uh, San Antonio originally. I, I am from San Antonio, Texas. Yes. You, so I'm a Texan. I was wondering, do you, do you claim Texan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like once a Texan, always a Texan. Now... Um, the greater Charlotte area is my home now, and this is my mission field. And so this is where God has has called me, love this area. Would have never thought that I would live in the southeast of the United States of America, but um, God in his, his beautiful providential hand will place you where he wants you to be. Yeah, yeah. Where, where did you imagine yourself living if it wasn't there? So my, so my wife and I uh, thought that we would live out west. She is from Montana. And uh, we love Tucson, Arizona. We love San Diego. We love Seattle. We loved uh, Provo, Utah. And so I would suspect that um, as we get older, we'll try to get like a like a little spot, probably somewhere out west, like <clears throat> Hamilton, Montana. Okay, outstanding, outstanding. Now, uh, you and your wife both went to BYU. That's where you guys met. We did, we did. So I was, I was, I was there on a football scholarship, and she was there on an academic track scholarship. And uh, she actually was valedictorian at BYU. Wow, uh, very accomplished athlete in her own right. Uh, just an in- incredible athlete. What did she do in the track team? She threw the javelin. So, oh. which is both incredibly terrifying and sexy all at once. And so, I think that's what attracted me to her. Not only was she. Uh, brilliantly intelligent she was a hard worker she's a great athlete she mixed it up with the guys playing basketball we we're great friends and uh, we started dating second semester of my freshman year hmm. and uh, we have literally been together ever since and one of the cool things is we met on january 15th 1990 which is dr king's birthday and now we uh, lead and, and, and pastor a multi-ethnic church. And so I think that's pretty cool. That is, that is. And uh, kids now? <clears throat> yes, a daughter, a daughter that'll be 25 and a son that'll be 21 in August. And so she's a graduate of uh, UNC Wilmington in psychology. And our son is going to be a junior at the University of Montana. Outstanding. Outstanding. And uh, like you said, you, you pastor a multi-ethnic church that uh, you guys uh, planted, started, some, was it two decades ago? How long have you been doing it? Uh, 11 years. It oh, was 11. February 7th. Yeah, February 7th, 2010 is when we officially planted Transformation Church. But the the seeds of Transformation Church, I think God planted it in my heart not much long after I became a follower of Christ in 1997, um, neither my wife nor I grew up in a church background. We both came to faith. I, I came to faith through a teammate. She came to faith through a woman at her job. And when we became Christians, it was just weird to us that the nightclub looked more like Revelation 7-9, every nation, tribe, and tongue, mm-hmm. than Jesus's club. We just found it just so strange. <clears throat> Why were Christians so segregated and okay with that? As Brand new Christians, we're like, well, 
if Jesus loves everybody and if we're really in God's family, why are we separated and why is there so much tension and why don't we talk about the deeper issues of systemic injustice? Why don't we talk about racism? Why don't we talk about those things? And we found out quickly that that was by design. And uh, we were super frustrated. And as we were just reading the Bible, both of us, uh, I mean, we came to Jesus from an unchurched background. So the Bible was just so beautiful to, to us. And we thought, okay, here's Jesus meeting with a Samaritan woman Okay, that's breaking down ethnic walls. That's breaking down misogynistic walls. And here's the Apostle Paul planning the ecclesia, which is a Greek word for church that had Jews and Gentiles. And we didn't see where Paul says, hey, I'm going to plant a church for Jews. I'm going to plant a church for the African Gentiles, the Spanish Gentiles, the this. No, he brought them all together in the beauty of Jesus and his forgiveness and mercy and grace as the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. We just couldn't understand like, hey, hey guys, like this is in the Bible, but we would get all these answers that were so unbiblical. Mm -hmm. And we sense God saying, well, you can criticize or you can create. And uh, we launched in February 7, 2010. It was four of us around a table. Now there's multiple, multiple thousands. And it's just been absolutely incredible to see Nearly 7,000 people come to faith, <clears throat> tons baptized in a church that is serious about the gospel, serious about justice, serious about discipleship. And it has been super cool. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, you referenced a study uh, or, or a, uh, a journal article by a guy named Mark Chavez who says that 80%, 86% of American <laughs> congregations remain overwhelmingly white, black, Hispanic, or Asian. What a mm-hmm. singular ethnicity in their, in their uh, attendance on an average Sunday. You, a second ago, just said it was by design that the way churches end up this way. Yeah. Uh, tell me more about what is the design that leads mm-hmm. to 86% of churches being basically sing, uh, single, <clears throat> single uh, ethnicity. Yeah, okay, so let's define some terms because I think that's super, super important. Okay, so uh, sociologist Michael Emerson, University of Illinois, many, many years ago through sociological study coined the, the term that a church is considered multi-ethnic if one ethnicity does not make up more than 80% of the church, okay? Here's the positives, Since 1998, that number has grown exponentially. So that is a good thing. The negative part of it is this 58% of multi ethnic, uh, 58% of mega churches, which means churches over 2,000, are now considered multi ethnic. But of those 58%, 90% of the pastors are white. Now, is that bad? No. What makes it difficult is with 90% of the leadership being white, issues of systemic injustice and issues of racism aren't really talked about. And there's a mass exodus leaving those churches. And so the way I described is like a bowl of vanilla ice cream with chocolate chips in it, just enough chocolate to give it a little flavor, but not really add to the bowl of ice cream. Right. So. Um, for all the positives, there is a little setback. And that's why leadership is so important that you have different perspectives of leadership because I don't know everything. You don't know everything. And so the other together creates unity and beauty for us to see the world. All right. So now when I say it's strategically designed that way, let's think of the history of the church in the United States of America. And this is so important. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get on a, a, a soapbox just here for a minute. Go for it. Church, church history is not going back to like 1982. It's important for us to understand that. Mm-hmm. As we look at church history and specifically, as we look at the 400 plus years of America and, and, and as we look at the church, 90% of historic black denominations exist today because of racism within the church. Black people, uh, enslaved people were not allowed to lead churches. They were not allowed to participate or they had to be in a slave quarters. And so therefore, 
racism and the sin of white supremacy created the historical black churches, right? When you look at the history of our nation as it pertains to, uh, and which, by, by the way, uh, I love the United States of America. I am thankful to be an American. Because I love my nation, it's important for us to also look at the negative things that took place. And so as a theologian, as a pastor, as a historian, we look at what has shaped the church to where it is, right? So we look at Jim Crow segregation. Oftentimes, it was the church in favor of keeping people enslaved. Uh, America's greatest theologian is considered Jonathan Edwards. Well, Jonathan Edwards wanted slaves. Jonathan Edwards had slaves. When we think of the great revivals in America, uh, led by George Whitfield, he went before the Georgia Supreme Court to argue for slavery, enslaved people, right? So we have to look at those things. And so when you get into the 1900s and you get into even now that there's these embedded structures of saying, well, this is just the way it was. And so for years, when I first started preaching <clears throat> about God's desire for a multi-ethnic church almost 20 years ago, people were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, dude, this is elementary Christianity 101. Yeah. The early church was a multi-ethnic church of Jews and Gentiles. And the Roman world and the Jewish world didn't know what to do. How did these enemies become friends? How did these foes become family? Well, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> it sounds strange when in reality, it was normal Christianity. So in the 1970s and 80s, this thing called the homogeneous unit principle was brought into being. The homogeneous unit principle was by a missionary named Donald McGavern, who was a missionary in India. Well, India has a caste system. And what he said is we need to reach each caste homogeneously or individually, but don't stop there. Get them to get to know Christ, but then bring them into a diverse family. If you don't do that, you have um, the likelihood of creating a racist or prejudiced church. Well, American entrepreneur types grabbed that and said, man, this really fits good into the American ethos. So therefore, let's build churches on same ethnicity, same class, uh, same, 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 because it'll grow faster and what you've done is, is you've created pockets of ignorance, echo chambers of prejudice. Matter of fact, research shows, and I put, point this out in my book, research shows that homogeneous uh, churches actually increase prejudice, increase political division, increase disunity. Why? Because everybody thinks the same. And that's the beauty of the New Testament is you have Jews and Gentiles with different situations in life coming to Jesus. And it's the other that draws out the beauty that we didn't even know we possessed it. Yeah. And so. So, yeah, that's the short answer to your question. You you stopped in the middle of this, that, that great answer, uh, the as you call it, the short answer to the question and said, but I love America. Why did mm-hmm. you feel the need to stop and make a statement, which I, I wouldn't feel the need that I have to say that. Why, why did you feel like you need to say that? Uh, because uh, Christian nationalism is running amok in Jesus's church, and it's primarily through uh, white evangelicals, my brothers and sisters that I deeply love. There is this, uh, there is this uh, syncretism that America and Jesus go hand in hand. So therefore, if you say anything about negative about America, you're talking about Jesus and you're talking about uh, white brothers and sisters. And this is one of the things that I've discipled our church through. So our church is probably 58% white. And so I have to bring them along to say, number one, your identity, all of us, your identity is in Jesus Christ alone. We are united to him not the United States of America. Therefore, we can look back at this nation and go, man, we're like a family. There are some good things and there are some heinous things. And if we don't talk about the good things, we forget them. But if we don't talk about the bad things, we relive them. Therefore, 
as Christians, we should be able to look back with a critical eye of saying, this isn't to make people feel guilty. This isn't to make white brothers and sisters feel bad. It's for us to collectively mourn. How did we get to where we are today? As we look back, then we link arms to say, our God is a God of justice, which simply means to right the wrongs, to love your neighbors, you love yourself. How do we, as followers of Jesus, be salt and light to create a world where even unbelievers go, wow, what a great God they serve, right? So as a black Christian, <clears throat> particularly over the last five years, if you say anything negative about America's past, it's like, well, you're woke, you're CRT, which by the way, I'm a New Testament scholar and I literally just heard of CRT like six months ago. Yeah. Like, like I, I wrote a doctoral thesis, like 50,000 words and I don't know anybody that does CRT. Um, so I had to bring that up because there's like this demonic campaign that if you bring up anything negative about America, which is historical and true, you're somehow anti-American. Let me, let me pause here. I recently learned that my great, 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 great grandfather, his name is Moses Davis from the state of Virginia. He fought in the Civil War with the Virginia Fourth Colored Cavalry. He fought against the Confederacy. Why? Because the Union stood for liberty and justice for all. The Confederacy, a four-year-old regime was not patriotic. It wanted to be its own nation. It wanted to keep human beings, black human beings enslaved. My ancestors fought against that. So when I see the American flag, I see a black man who said, I'm willing to fight for liberty and justice for all against the Confederacy. So when I see a Confederate flag, I don't see like, oh, this is Southern heritage. It was only four years old. What I see is a flag that says we didn't want to be Americans and we wanted to keep human beings made in the image of God enslaved. To me, that equates to seeing a Nazi flag in a Jewish neighborhood in Germany. And there are Christians who go, well, brother, this is just my heritage. And I'm like, no, no, no. Your heritage is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That's your heritage. Mm -hmm. And so within my blood is patriotism. At the January 6th insurgency, there was a Confederate flag in the U.S. Capitol. Are you kidding me? And I didn't hear many pastors say a word. In Charlottesville in 2017, when neo-Nazis are marching in America, let's pause here. In World War II, many Americans, including black Americans and Native American Americans and Latino Americans and Asian Americans, went and fought against the racist regime of the Nazis. And now they're Nazis marching in America and pulpits were silent. But yet we want to talk about CRT. Hmm. Why do you think we want to talk about CRT? Because we don't want to deal with the real issue. Which the is? real the real issue is uh, prejudice and sin runs amok within the church. And here's the dangerous thing. We have made the bar far too low for the sin of favoritism, for the sin of racism and for the sin of prejudice. We think, well, if I'm not a part of a hate group, I'm not prejudiced. Uh, let me give you an illustration. I was talking to a gentleman uh, who said he was a believer, and I asked him how he felt about a certain group of people. And he goes, well, I'm fine with them. And I said, well, brother, you are a follower of Christ, right? He goes, yes, sir. I said, well, Jesus said to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Where does it say, I'm fine with them? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I'm fine with them. That is sub-Christian. No, we are called to love people, and what does love look like? It looks like a bloody cross. It's sacrificial. And so we've made the bar far too low. Also, a lack of love is, well, 
uh, well, police brutality doesn't e- exist. So you're telling me as a Christian, systemic injustice and total depravity misses an entire police department? Like it's a, it's amazing how wacky theology gets when it topples over our idols. Because if total depravity is real and systemic demonic powers are real, then I would suspect that just as there are bad pastors, there's probably bad policemen. And by the way, you can be pro-police and pro-police reform simultaneously. It, it, it's this is this is where people don't know what to do with me because we get awards <clears throat> from the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department because of our relationship that we've had for years, but yet we still call for police reform. Just as you as a pastor, I don't know about you, but I want to uproot profiteers and heretics out of the pulpit. Don't don't you? Yes, sir. So why wouldn't we want that with police or any other agency? Hmm. You, you know, and 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 then people say things like, well. Systemic injustice doesn't exist. And I go, okay, is total depravity real? Yes. Are dark powers and principalities real? Yes. So you think with total depravity and dark powers, the systemic injustice can exist? No. I'm like, wait a second, let's start over again. Also, for my white uh, brothers and sisters, uh, there's often this view and research backs this up that White evangelicals are discriminated against on college campuses. They're discriminated against in the media. And I'll say, do you believe that? And they'll go, well, yeah. I'll go, well, you believe in systemic injustice then. Hmm. And that's what they'll say is, hmm. I, I, I guess I believe in systemic injustice, but the only kind that affects me. If you preach in 99% of churches across America that racism is sin, everyone's going to say yes. If you say mm-hmm. all are created in the image of God, everyone's going to say yes. But when mm-hmm. you use that word systemic, that's mm-hmm. when things go divisive. Mm-hmm. Why is that word, why do you have such, such a tough time talking about that word? Because, because, for, be, be, because the American dream says this. If you work hard enough, you can do anything you want to do. And the reason why certain ethnic groups don't have what the majority white culture has is because they just haven't worked hard enough. So if systemic injustice is real, then that means, wow, I guess my work was favored and had privilege. So let me give you an illustration. In elementary school, uh, most of the desks were for right handed people. There were some people who had left hands. Now, they would write on the right-handed desk and they would do work, but it was harder for them. But they still got the work done. People who were right-handed, I didn't really think about the left-handed people and how hard it was because I had right privilege. The desk was made for me. The left-handed people worked equally as hard, but it was harder. When you look at the United States of America, colored only water fountains, women couldn't vote till 1920, reconstruction, segregation, the Civil Rights Act, even to this very day, it's hard for people to go, oh, it's not that I didn't work hard, it's that the color of my skin did not distract from my work. Mm-hmm. So let me pause here because I know what someone's going to say. Well, stop making excuses. Number one, I am more than a conqueror in him who loves me. Number two, to point out systemic injustice is not an excuse. It's asking you, one, to be a Christian and mourn for injustice. Two, it's asking you to say, how can we create a just society? When we begin to care about people who don't look like us, that's when our hearts really began to grow. It's mm-hmm. true. A couple months ago, I pulled up on stage one of those said desks that you referred to, and I, as a left-handed person, acted out my struggle as one of the ten percent. And I think I referenced—I think a guy named McPherson from like California, Miles McPherson. I yes. think I ripped that off from him. I gave him credit for it, and then so did I. Okay, and uh, uh, so doing this series, talking about this stuff. Here's the feedback I get is a genuine 
loving human being that I respect says, I, I just feel, I don't want to feel guilty for being a white man. Okay. That's the first I've one. I've heard that. Okay. Uh, second one is, when are we going to talk about abortion? Have you heard that one? Oh, yeah. Okay. And, okay, go ahead. No, no, no. Okay. So- okay. Yeah. So, so, so the, the first thing is <clears throat> what, I, what, what I say to our people is the only reason you should feel guilty is if you think you're responsible. Mm-hmm. Why have you woven your identity so much so into the sins of your ancestors that you feel responsible? That's called idolatry. What's so hard about saying my identity is in Jesus? What happened in the past is wrong. Let's say it's wrong. And then let's move forward to turn wrongs into rights, to be salt and light, to live out the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. The reason why is there is a privileged position that you have as people of the dominant culture. And if you admit that something's wrong, then you have to admit like, man, I have benefited from past sins doesn't mean to feel guilty. It's an issue of discipleship. Like, so my home where I live in Charlotte, North Carolina is on property that the Catawba Native Americans lived on. I own the home now. Where are they? Well, genocide, they've been moved. Am I to feel guilty? No, I'm to mourn and then say, how can I come alongside of Native Americans to create a more just society? Number two, uh, our church always talks about pro-life in the womb, but outside of the tomb. And so every time I get get that charge, I send them an article where our church recently gave $50,000 to a pro-life organization that helps people while the baby's still in the womb. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and. See, people who say those things have been watching too much Fox News or MSNBC. They're getting their discipleship from political parties. Why can't we be both? Why can't we talk about life in the womb and also systemic injustice and racism? Why can't we talk about your idolatry to think that America is just a white person's country. No, it's all of our country. America was built on the backs of enslaved people taken from Native Americans. This doesn't belong to one little ethnic group. It's all of our nation and we need to own the good. We need to own the bad. And if you're a Christian, your identity is not in America. It is in Jesus Christ. And there are too many Christians who think that Jesus and the American flag go hand in hand. I have read the Bible entirely. And at the end of Revelation, it doesn't say anything about the United States of America. It says every nation, tribe and tongue surrounding King Jesus. Christian nationalism is going to destroy the church. Young people are running in droves from it. There's no power in it. It's ugly. It's mean. It's, it's, it's ahistorical. Young people in their twenties are flocking to transformation church because they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. You can love someone without loving sin. You can be pro-life in the womb, but also care about children at the border. We are the party of the lamb, not the elephant and not the donkey. And then even from our friends, uh, I don't I don't know when this is going to air, but a lot of my Christian friends were, you know, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to do this for the immigrants. And the other day, Kamala Harris goes, immigrants do not come to America. Stay where you are. And I say to those people, I'm like, when you put your hope in a donkey, it'll make up. Well, I'm not going to say what it'll make (laughs) you, but. (laughs) No, our hope is in the lamb. Mm -hmm. Politicians will do whatever they can do to get votes. Now, do I vote? Yeah. My people were, were, were fought with their lives so that they could vote. The American right simply to vote. You had to get killed and lynched for. And so, yes, I vote, but I recognize this. God didn't call governments to save the world. He called this church to be a beatitude kind of people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will see God. You feel what I'm saying? Yes, sir. And that's that's where we've got to disciple our people in this angry entertainment based society. So what I would say to those people back to what you're saying is, brother, your identity is not in America, so you shouldn't feel guilty. Hmm. You only feel guilty about things, you know, you benefited from or B, uh, things that you think are OK. Yeah, that's good. It seems that in your book, you go above and beyond to establish that all of this call for justice to be a multi-ethnic church is founded 100% in the witness of Scripture. And over mm-hmm. and over again, you're going, hey, this is, this is in the Scripture. This is not from some left or right agenda. It's, it's in our original playbook. This is who we're called to be. Yes. Yeah, so, so one of the reasons why I pursued a doctorate, and specifically under renowned scholar uh, Scott McKnight, uh, my doctorate is New Testament in context, where you study the first century Second Temple Jewish world in which the church emerged. One of the reasons why I did that, one is I love to learn. Two, I love Jesus's church. Three, how could I not take this opportunity to learn from a world-renowned scholar? But four, as a black pastor, I had to have, I have to be five times better. I have to be a better exegete. I have to be so much better to establish trust. And some of you go, well, what do you mean? This is what I mean. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, wow, your theology is really good. And I'm like, well, I graduated magna cum laude with my master's under Norman Geisler and I have a doctorate. Why, why wouldn't it be good? Hmm. <laughs> you know? And so what I've learned, particularly to help build our church is for, white Christians, I have to be an incredible exegete of scripture, but also for all Christians is I love the revelation of God. And we're looking for all these solutions. And Jesus is saying, join me on mission, become an agent of reconciliation, which means as Paul says, I become all things all men to one man know Christ, which means I have to learn cross-cultural competency. One of the highest values of loving people is saying, I want to understand where you come from. What are your symbols? What, what gives you hope? What are these things? And so, yeah, like we have to be thoroughly uh, uh, um, biblical. And I'm a retired football player and the best coaches say the same things over and over, but in different ways, because we're prone to forget. We are prone to wander. And since I'm on this riff, let me just keep on going going. because, because we have not been who we're supposed to be as a church. Nature abhors a vacuum. And so black lives matter comes in and says, Hey, Church, you don't want to talk about uh, police brutality. You don't want to talk about injustice. Well, we will. And then people go, well, I'm not for Black Lives Matter. Well, listen, I'm not for Black Lives Matter organization, but I'm for any organization that calls out the common good for justice. And here's my thing. There would be no need for Black Lives Matter if every church that upholds the name of Jesus would have said, hey, our black brothers and sisters are saying that there's a problem and where there's smoke, there's a fire. And it doesn't mean you can't be pro-police. You can be. I am. But it also means police reform. And we should be just like we're for justice in the womb. We got to be for justice outside the womb. It seems that. uh, You you know what? You know what, Luke? Uh, I want to share this with your audience. Okay. And I want it to be heard in which the spirit that I that I want to share it. So um, as you can tell, I have an incredible tan and uh, I'm African-American, though I'm actually 23 percent European as well. Okay. <clears throat> my, my mom is a little bit darker than you. I got an aunt with blonde hair and green eyes. I always knew something was up. So I did a DNA test and. 23% European. So I like to say I'm a black Scotsman. I want to go to Scotland. So, um, so, so, so as a black man, 
our culture presents us, and you can look at history as, you know, violent and all these things. Let's take a moment here and pause. Enslaved people were brought to the Americas, right? Not by black men. Now, some tribes sold other tribes. We, 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 under, we understand that. But a whole transatlantic business, that wasn't black men. The slaughtering and genocide of Native Americans wasn't black men. But yet, well, black men are violent. When you think of the Tulsa massacre, which one of these historically events where black Wall Street's burned down that we have to fight so hard for it to be known. So I think it's important to remove this stigma of, well, black men are violent or black men are not good dads or no. Let's take a step back and, and, and actually get to know the them that you say you're discussing. But as Christians, let's keep this Christianly. But as Christians, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. <clears throat> the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. May we be governed by the gospel, empowered by the spirit to be great lovers. Yeah. Amen to that. Your story is you, you started this church, and uh, it's become this multi-ethnic church that many people go, oh, that's a, that's a great example. We need to plant churches like this. Uh, some of us are, are like the person who wrote the foreword for the book, Matt Chandler, who, who inherits a church that is not multi-ethnic. And you said, you know, good, good coaches, how they act. Um, if you were to become a coach for someone like myself, who is at a predominantly uh, singular ethnicity church, what are the things that you'd coach them into? Say, these are things you need to do if you want to grow to reflect more of the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing that I would do is I would say, pastor, uh, get your other pastors, your staff, key elders, key lay le- leaders, and begin to pray and fast. Mm-hmm. Begin to pray and fast. As you're praying and fasting, read the book of Ephesians together, slowly, devotionally. Circle every time you see Jew. Circle every time you see Gentile. And then begin to discuss it. That's the first thing. Second thing is, I would look at what are the demographics where your church is located. Research shows that the average church in America is 10 times more segregated than the schools where it's at and 20 times more segregated than the neighborhoods. So oftentimes ethnic diversity is possible. Thirdly, once if you ascertain that it's possible, you have to really begin to look at your leadership identity by association and representation is important. Acts chapter six, the Hellenistic Jewish women are experiencing systemic injustice. The Hebraic Jewish women are receiving the lion's share of the food. Historically, if you were from Israel, if you lived in Jerusalem, you were considered a better Jew because you were closer to the temple. The Hellenistic Jews were diaspora. They're from other places. So there's an uproar. Hey, uh, apostles, there is systemic injustice. What do the apostles do? You guys get seven men. And when you look at them, they have incredible character. But also, if you read their names, they're Hellenistic names. Why? Why would they say get seven Hellenists to play this role as deacons? Because they would understand the needs of those particular people. So ethnic diversity and leadership is important. If you go to transformationchurch.tc and you look at our staff, our staff reflects what our congregation is. So before we planted Transformation Church, our staff reflected what I wanted the congregation to be and could be. So what I would say to you, Pastor Luke, is begin to pray about key hirings and leaders that are not necessarily musicians. Why not musicians? Because we've been entertaining white people for a long time. Yeah. Now, am I saying don't do that first? I'm just saying don't stop there. Mm-hmm. Um. Have some musicians, but don't just limit them to playing white cultural songs without being who they really are. And then you want to expand to who's preaching with you, who's teaching classes with with, with you. What influence do they actually have? 
Because if not, you're going to have chocolate and caramel chips in a bowl of vanilla, and it's not going to be able to influence. Instead of chips, you want swirls. <laughs> I love so, ice cream. I love this metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> so so my my first hire was a 54-year-old white guy to be the executive pastor. Number one, he was qualified. Number two, he brought life experience I didn't have. Number three, he had incredible church experience. Number four, he was an older white man that we were not just going to be a young, cool, hip church. We need grandpas. And and now, he see, he was 54 when I hired him. I'm now 50. You know, and so multi-generational was important as well, right? So, uh, hey, it's glad that you hired a black worship leader. That's awesome, but just don't stop there. Let them create. Like multi-ethnic churches become engines of innovation because of our diversity. We'll find ourselves doing things we never, ever thought was possible. And then fourthly, <clears throat> learning cross-cultural competency Meaning, don't just see life from your perspective. So an example, when we helped churches in India with a financial gift because of COVID, the Indian people in our congregation were like, thank you. When we talk about immigration or when we sing songs in Spanish or when they see that our executive pastor now is a Puerto Rican, that speaks Uh, When women are in leadership and serving and leading and teaching, that speaks. Now, this isn't about affirmative action. This is about affirming God's action that he raises up people. And so if you go, man, I I just don't have a diversity of friends. Well, pray for God to bring you some. Like my 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 friend group is very diverse pastorally and personally because that's a value for me because I believe it's a kingdom value. Cross cultural is very very important. And Luke, uh, this is what I'll say all also too, particularly for white pastors, expect to lose thirty percent of your congregation within the first year if you get serious about this. Why is that? Uh, because they're going to be people who don't want to hear it. They are going to refuse to not find their identity in the United States of America. Um, They're going to say, man, just preach the gospel. And to them, the gospel is Jesus died for their sins. You go to heaven when you die. And well, the gospel is political as long as it's Republican, as long as it's pro-life, that type of thing. And it's like, no, I want to expand the territories of your soul that systemic racism is sin and Jesus defeated sin, death and evil. And he wants us to participate in that. But a lot of my white pastor friends are hemorrhaging right now, and many of them can't even believe um, how people they've ministered to for decades have just abandoned them. And say, hey, man, you're woke now. You're not preaching the gospel. And, you know, for people li- listening, we have seen, I think, now over 7,000 people come to faith. We've baptized tons of folks. Um, so this isn't a preach the gospel, preach justice. <clears throat> this is the good news of our saving King Jesus is by faith. He invites us to participate in his kingdom. We are a forgiven, redeemed, reconciled, righteous spirit enabled people to join him in his mission and ministry. And in case you don't know what it is, it is Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 18, which is a quotation of Luke chapter 61. Whoop, there it is. Drop the mic. We're done. So when you start to understand the gospel, isn't just going to, uh, whoop, there it is. Um, when you understand the gospel isn't just Jesus dies, you go to heaven when you die, but instead the gospel is Jesus living into that Isaiah 61 text, that Jesus is proclaiming this good news of Jesus being king. We can't just sit back on the sidelines and, and not be a part of this. But yeah, can, can you give a word to the pastors of the white churches who've lost 30%? And so they hear your story and go, wow, 7,000, you're baptizing, all this great numerical growth that America says, oh, this is very successful. Um, And they're having a different experience. Yeah. Do you have a word for them? I do. I I do. Um, Just as God whittled down Gideon's army, he may be whittling down your congregation. 
but it's better to have 200 that get it than 2,000 that don't. And numerical success is not the goal. All healthy things grow. That's spiritually and numerically. Be faithful. You dig your well deep and God will fill it up with water. Be faithful. Um, America is filled with multiple campuses and churches everywhere and mega churches, which we are. But my point is this. Look at the wreck the church is in right now. QAnon conspiracy theories, anti-vaccination mass theories. Like who in the world would have ever thought that evangelical Christians would say that a president's moral life doesn't matter? Who would have ever thought that? Who would have ever thought that evangelical Christians would say it's okay for a president to lie about paying a porn star for sex while his wife was pregnant, then come back and say, yep, I paid the money and nothing. Who would have ever thought that? Here's what happens. When we put our faith in politics, we're blinded by that idolatry. And once again, my hope is not in a lamb. I mean, my hope is not in a donkey. It's not in an elephant. It's in the lamb. And we are to be a part of the process, but we have to view this process as ambassadors of reconciliation in God's kingdom. So let God do the pruning so that more fruit can grow. Amen. That's a good word. Uh, Dr. Gray, the book is Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for sharing these words. Uh, It's been deeply meaningful. So much thanks. Thank you, brother. I'm from San Antonio, and I love me some Austin. Well, uh, hook them horns. I know that's that's not your people, but uh, you are welcome in Austin. Anytime you're here, we'll get you some barbecue and have a good time. Oh, do you hold on? Important question: Barbecue? What's no doubt? Are you you haven't converted to like this this? No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. I, oh. I, no, no, no. Okay, Oof. okay. So, so, Oof. no, no, no. When I when I come to Texas, I get real barbecue. Thank and you. And you know what's real barbecue? Because you ain't even got a plate. No, it's just paper. It's just paper, yeah. And with brisket and ribs. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, nah. You know, I subsist up here, but I long to get okay. to Texas to get real, real barbecue. Okay, I think the gospel includes all people, Jews and Gentiles, but if you're disrespecting Texas barbecue, I don't know if you're included. I think you, you might know, be excluded. And Tom Wright would support that, I think. I think so, too. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> all right, Thanks, man. brother. Thank you, man. Bye-bye. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.